1 John chapter 3 again this morning. So encouraging to know that John wants his people to know that they are in the family of God. He wants them to know that. He wants them to have security in that. To be assured of their status in the family of God. He wants them to know it, but not also just in their heads. He wants them to know it in their hearts. To experience it, to feel it in their hearts through the Word that they are sure, they are secure, they are assured of their place with Him. So in order to get that job done, John provides two ways to test for it. Two ways to test for an authentic faith. And they are both tied to the character of God. The attributes of God's holiness and God's love. So John says repeatedly, God is a light. God is light. He is absolutely holy. He's righteous. And God is also love. And with the logic of regeneration, the concept that you and I have been transformed by this message, transformed by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit of God, John's logic is like this. If God is light, if God is righteous, if God is holy, His people will be marked with that as well. Not perfectly, but His people over the course of time will demonstrate, will reflect that they know God in this way. That they too are living out the light. Moreover, God is love, you might say, and so are His people. God is love and so are His people. God's children, if they have been born again, if they have been regenerated by the Holy Spirit of God, will be marked also with His character of love. So God is light, God is love, so are His people. Not perfectly, but His people will be marked with these attributes as well. And you can see this in a nutshell in chapter 3 and verse 10. Again, look at it with me. This is like the third time we've looked at this verse. But it's just a beautiful summary of what we're talking about. By this it is evident, it's plain, it's clear who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. So you can see very plainly what, what John is saying. You can see where they are. Right? Whoever does not practice righteousness, who does not walk in the light, whose life is not marked by holiness at all, is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So you can see it plainly here. Now, as we engage this latter test, the test of love, we noticed last week in verses 11 through uh, roughly 15 that there's really only two ways to live. In John's mind, there's really only two ways to live. A life that's marked by self that leads to manifestations of hate and a life that's marked by God that leads to manifestations of love. And we said last week, this is very important, we'll reiterate this morning, but also clarify, only Jesus can make that change. Only Jesus can make the switch to take his people off the path of self, dominated by pride and self-absorption, to take them down the path of God and others marked by love. Only Jesus makes this switch. So last week we talked about the way of hate, and it was heavy, right? We need to evaluate. Is my life marked by hate? John's ultimate question is, do I really know him? Do I really know God? Have I been born again? 
This week, let's talk about the way of love. Okay, the, the pathway that's marked by God and others, a pathway you might identify as a path of love. Now, you might say this morning here at the outset, this should be fun, right? Whereas last week was a bit heavy, this should be pretty great, right? Because this is something that everybody gets. Everybody likes to talk about love, right? Even society likes to talk about love. Even people who don't know Christ, they get this message, right? Think about it. I mean, it's, it's what we talk about. It's what you see in headlines. It's what you hear in songs. We love love, don't we? We love the concept of love, right? It dominates the music charts. All you need is love. All you need is love. Right? Or, how about this? You guys can help me with this. What the world needs now is love, sweet love. It's the only thing that there's just too little of. That, that's the mindset, right? But does society really get it? Think with me. Does society really get it? an understanding of the kind of love that John is talking about. My friends, let me say something that might uh, take you aback. I want to suggest that I think the kind of love that John is talking about here is a kind of love that even a lot of Christians don't get. So with that, would you look with me at this text. This is the kind of love that is only found in the cross. It's only found in the gospel. It's only given to us by God through His Spirit. And I think John gives it to us in four ways. We're going to look at just the first two this morning, but in four ways. I want to show you that it's first a love that is super. A love that is super. Often in movies uh, related to the supernatural with superheroes, you will have the supers hidden in plain sight. Right? They look like normal people, but... In all actual fact, they have superpowers, right? So Superman is Clark Kent by day, Superman by night, Spider-Man is Peter Parker, right? They look normal, but in fact, underneath, they have superpowers. It's not a stretch to say this is exactly what God has to say about the Christian, okay? This is exactly what God has to say about the true Christian. You are, if you're a Christian, you are a super. Did you know that? You have the Holy Spirit of God within you, and you have His love within you. But the point here for a moment is this. It's a love that's been given to you. It's not a love that you come by naturally. This is a love that is, a kind of love that is super. Dustin, how do we see that in the text? Well, it's evident here, as it's rooted in John's born-again language, the language that's tied into regeneration. Again, check out your text. Go with me to the beginning of chapter 3. The beginning of chapter 3. You notice with me the last line of chapter 2 is what? Everyone who practices righteousness has been, note the language, born of him. Born again, regeneration type language. Chapter 3 and verse 1, he continues the logic. See what kind of love the Father has given to us? It's not something that we conjured. It's something that the Father bestows upon us gives to us, that he later in this chapter is going to say, should be coming out of us. It's something that's attached to 
regeneration. Something we know because we know the Father. He continues. Again, just see this born-again language, the language of family, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Thus, going to argue, they don't know this kind of love. They may know a form of love and may stand in awe of this kind of love, but they don't know intimately this kind of love. Verse 2, beloved, he says, we are God's children. What is this? This is born-again language. Skip down with me to verses 9 and 10. I just want you to understand that this context is crucial. Okay? It's crucial to our text. Verse 9, no one born of God. You see it there? Regeneration language. Born again makes the practice of sinning for God's seed abides in him. So John is here making the point about the light and how that should mark a believer's life. But just pay attention to the born-again language. This is the context. Uh, the assumption here is that this person is a child of God, born of God. God's seed abides in him. Because, last phrase of verse 9, he has been born of God. So verse 10, by this it is evident who are the children of God. We just read that verse. What is it? It's born-again language. Uh, skip down with me to verse 14. Last phrase of verse 14. Whoever does not love abides in death. Now he's going to talk about death and life, eternal life, eternal death, that's rooted in what? It's rooted in regeneration. Born, the question is, are you born again? Or does eternal death abide in you? So verse 15, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Who has eternal life? Those that are God's children. Those that are born again. Now we see it, not only in context, but in our actual text. Look at verse 16. I think you can see it here as well. Verse 16, by this, what does John say? By this, we know love. This is how we know love. This is John's point. This is how we know love. This is the way in which we can conceive of and be empowered to know and show love. And what is it attached to? Next phrase. That he laid down his life for us. This kind of love, my friends, is super. It's supernatural. It's in God and given to us when we are born again, when we are regenerated. So fundamentally, you've got to hang in here with me. But fundamentally, this is not about better conduct. This is not about behavior modification. Fundamentally, this is about new birth. It's about regeneration. That's what it's about. Okay, now, again, you've got to hang in here with me because it's, it's going to lead somewhere. It's going to lead to action. It's going to lead to volition. But at its root level, to understand this text, you have to see John's care with new birth. He wants us to know that we are children of God, that we actually have been born again, that we actually have tasted of His Holy Spirit. So, in context here, the love John is speaking of is exemplified by Christ and defined by His gospel. So, not, not too strong to say that we can't know this kind of love apart from the cross. You guys with me? Thus, I'm saying it's super. This kind of love is supernatural. 
It is contingent upon knowing God. It's contingent upon being born again of His Spirit. Thus, it's radical. My friends, this is exciting, right? But it's also compelling. It's also convicting. Thus, this kind of love that John is going to talk to us about is radical. It's not like anything that we typically see. It's distinct. Just think about it in contrast that we talked about last week with regard to hate. If you think about what Jesus preached in Matthew chapter 5, which part of his aim, as Adam Johnson talked to us about, part of his aim was to help us to see, impossible! Like, we can't do this! In that context, Matthew chapter 5, where Jesus says, you must be perfect, you must be totally righteous, he says, you've heard that it's been said, love your neighbor, but I say to you, love your who? Love your enemy. Very good. Now, who does that? In the context of Matthew 5, uh, Jesus says, basically, you guys want to talk about loving those who love you, but I'm saying to you, like, what's the big deal? Everybody does that, right? Everybody does that. It, it's very easy for selfishness to be present even in that kind of, that form of love, because you might love someone with the hopes that they would love you back, right? Kind of a friendship rooted in what you can get out of the deal. Jesus says, everybody does that, or everybody can do that. But how about loving your enemy? Who does that? Who does that? And the resounding answer to Jesus, the rhetorical answer is, no one. No one does that. No one loves their enemies completely counter to the way we think. So it's this kind of love that we're talking about. And it's radical. Only this love can satisfy your appetite for bitterness. Only this kind of love can quench your thirst for revenge. It feels so good and your heart is so drawn to. Only this kind of love can make this kind of switch. This kind of distinction, only this kind of love can empower you to forgive and to restore. It's a love that is only known through Christ. My friends, it's only known through the cross. So, John says, chapter 3, verse 16, By this we, the children of God, know love. This is how we know love. That He laid His life down for us. It's rooted in the cross, my friends. It's rooted in the gospel. So John says, those that know him, those that are children of God, have been endowed by and infused with his love. The love that I want you to see is super, okay? It's supernatural. And this supernatural love then begins to be evidenced in our life in this way. Number two, a love that is selfless. Number two, a love that is selfless. So John goes on to say what? Verse 16. I'm just walking through the text. By this we know, love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. What's the result? What's the result of knowing this kind of love, this kind of supernatural love, being tapped into that? What it produces in us is a radical 
selfless love. A radical, selfless love in a world that is radical about selfish love. Radical about selfishness. And we live in a selfish world, don't we? A culture obsessed, obsessed with self. It's selfie culture, right? It's my status. It's my followers. It's my image. It's my page. Self-promotion has become the norm. I was talking with uh, some friends recently, uh, maybe it was a couple of years ago, they were talking about self-promotion and almost in terms of like, it's kind of the necessary thing. It's like the necessary evil. Yeah. One of my friends was like, oh, well, you have to do it. <laughs> you have to do it. Self-promotion, such that it's the norm, right? And I think people know that it's kind of odd that we're so comfortable with self-promotion. So I actually Googled it this week, self-promotion, and here were three of the top like 10 articles on Google. Here, here they are. How to master self-promotion at work without rubbing people the wrong way. So we got to know that it's not good, but okay, second one, five tips for practicing self-promotion without being totally annoying. And then the third one was 40 ways, 40 ways to self-promote without being a jerk. Think about that. Kind of know that it's odd and a little bit off, but think about it. 40 ways, 40 ways to self-promote. Let me just tell you, don't look that article up, all right? You you don't need any help. Ultimately, we are hardwired to want to self-promote. We are hardwired to think fundamentally about self. By the way, you do know how a selfish person screws in a light bulb, don't you? This is just for free. (laughs) You, you You do know this, right? Well, you just stick it in and you wait for the world to revolve around you. That's what you do. That's what you do. But the Christian, listen, the Christian is supposed to be the opposite. The reverse, the kind of love we're talking about here is radically the opposite. It involves a radical change in the priorities of the heart. So the Christian is not focused on self and everything that just affects me, just affects my world and and my things and my status. Rather, the Christian is to be focused on others and how we might give of ourselves to other people. Isn't that what the text says? By this we know, love, that he laid down his life for us and we ought to do what? To lay down our lives for the brothers, for other people. And I think this switch changes everything about how we live, how we engage, how we interact. You see, I think fundamentally we naturally think about self. When we walk into a room, we naturally think about how are they going to see me? How do I look? Right? How, how am I going to be received and experienced? What will they think about me? And by the way, don't just pass over this too quickly. How do we think about this? How do we walk into rooms? How do we walk into church? How do we walk into small groups? Are we just fundamentally absorbed with how do I look? How, do, how, how, how am I going to come across? How are they going to receive me? Is that our mentality? I think what John is saying is when Christ enters our heart, that that is going to begin to change. Not that we will do it perfectly. Friends, 
We will fail in this. Because, again, we are hardwired to just think self-absorbed. But when Christ begins to change us, we, we begin to enter rooms differently. How, how can I be a blessing? How can I make someone else feel comfortable? How can I encourage so-and-so? You see the difference? I mean, the difference is night and day. That contrast is clean. And this makes all the difference everywhere. Starting with relationships. I mentioned a moment ago what it is to be a friend to someone in order to get something out of them. Perhaps you've had friends like that. You knew, you just knew over time, this is someone who is interested in me because of what they can get out of me. As opposed to a friend who is there for you to give. There for you because of what they can pour in. Man, the difference in those two friendships is great, isn't it? Wow. The difference between Loyalty and betrayal in the end. And we all know what that feels like. It makes all the difference in body life. How we interact with each other. It eliminates like territorial mindsets. Right? This is my ministry. This is what I do. And how dare they? And maybe they're a little bit better. And people are starting to look at them and not me anymore. And these kind of selfish attitudes become really destructive in a family, really destructive in a body. Start criticizing each other and judging one another and assuming the worst about the other person. Maybe starting to spread gossip about them and slander, not taking the time to engage if something's really true. But because you have kind of an axe to grind, you're going after them. It's destructive, isn't it? That's the way of self. Whereas the way of love, way of love, is to say, I don't ultimately matter. Right? If they can serve and perhaps they're better at it than I, wonderful for the, for the benefit of the body, for the fostering of ministry, etc. Makes all the difference. It makes all the difference in parenting. Makes all the difference in parenting. Such that a parent is loving the child to be a benefit, to be a blessing, to nurture and admonish them so that they will grow in the Lord as opposed to a parent who is trying to get stuff out of their kids. Right? Basically, their life in the public square is all about managing their reputation. Like, I don't want my kids to embarrass me. Trust me, parents, if you have kids, they will embarrass you. It's part of the deal. Like, this is what God wants to do in us, right? Humble us. It's part of the deal. But just that right there, it changes how we interact. Or parents who are driving their kids in certain ways to sort of live their life vicariously again through their kids, to get something out of their kids. And kids will feel the weight of that, be squashed by that. That's a selfish mindset, self-absorbed parenting, as opposed to a parenting that would set them free. Okay, let me clarify that. I mean, they need some discipline, okay, with a capital D, but that's love. That's love, right? Because I love them enough to shape. Okay, this is not a message on parenting. I'll I'll move off of that. Perhaps this is most evident in marriage. In marriage. 
a self-sacrificing mindset as opposed to a self-fulfilling mindset. And the difference in those two marriages is night and day. You enter into marriage with a mindset of, I'm going to get out of this deal. This is primarily my aim. I'm going to get from them self-fulfillment. It's going to be a really miserable place. Okay? Unless your spouse is a pure angel. It's going to be a really miserable, miserable place. But if both parties enter into this thing with a self-sacrificing mindset. What, what can I give up in order to make my spouse better? In order to make my spouse happy? How can I put self to death in order to put them first? That's a marriage that's going to be happening. That's a marriage that's going to be blossoming. blossoming. It's going to be beautiful. I've issued this uh, quote to you before. But I think it's really helpful. Someone said, destructive to marriage is the self-fulfillment ethic that assumes marriage and the family are primarily institutions of personal fulfillment. It's destructive. But isn't that how we tend to look at it? By the way, those of you that are dating, be careful with this. I think we we are prone to think about it that way, that I'm going to eventually find someone that just is the perfect person for me, right? And the mindset is they're going to complete me. They're going to make my life wonderful. I'm going to be the king or the queen and they are going to make my life glorious. Let me just tell you, it's going to be a rude awakening. They don't tell you the truth in all the uh, chick flicks or whatever. They don't tell you the whole truth. All right, that's not the way marriage is designed by God. Marriage is designed by God to be a space where people lay themselves down for the other. Where people model the love of Christ. And it's right here in 1 John 3.16. Jesus laid down His life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for one another. So, marriage is not fundamentally about personal fulfillment or self-fulfillment. Rather, it's about laying your life down. And here's the deal. Ironically, that's when joy enters in. I know that marriage is a complex thing, right? But talking in in simple terms, in basic terms, this is when marriages can thrive. So Tim Keller puts it this way. There is nothing, he says, more fulfilling horizontally, relationally, than two people being in a relationship in which each one is not seeking personal fulfillment, but rather the thriving of the other. In other words, that's where joy is. That's where satisfaction is. This is exactly what the Bible teaches. Philippians chapter 2. See it on the screen. Philippians chapter 2. Remember that Paul here starts this chapter with, fulfill my joy. Make my joy complete. What does he want for his people? Not just his own joy. He wants them to experience joy. And he says this, do nothing. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. It's about the other person, preferring the other person. When that happens, 
joy enters in, that's a place of fulfillment. So please hear me, my friends, please hear me. I think most modern definitions, even inside the broader church, most modern definitions of and expressions of love seek to smuggle selfishness into the picture. I feel like I see it all the time. Most modern definitions or expressions of love seek to smuggle selfishness into the picture. Because I think people want to think about love, especially in relationships and especially in hard relationships. People want to think about love apart from risk. People want to think about love apart from risk. They want to be able to have love and still prioritize self-preservation. But is this the way we know love? Thus, relationships become very fundamentally, I'm going to get what I deserve. That's the mindset. What, what do I deserve in this relationship as opposed to what can I give? I'm saying to you this morning, on the basis of this text, that might be a form of love, a shape of love, but it's not gospel love. This is not gospel love. For gospel love is always risky, and it always comes with cost. So again, look at 1 John 3.16. I'm just repeating this. We're talking about it. But just make sure you understand what I'm saying in light of this verse. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and what? And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. This is scandalous, my friends. It's not simple. It's not trite. It's heavy. This is what I mean when I say, I don't think even a lot of Christians really understand, at the bottom line, really understand what God is talking about in terms of love. True love. It is laying one's life down. It's risky. It's costly. Consider what C.S. Lewis writes in his book, The Four Loves. To love it all, he says, is to be vulnerable. Love anything, and your heart will certainly be wrung and passably broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements or covenants or commitments. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. Let me repeat that. Give it to no one. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But, he says, in that casket, safe but dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. 
the alternative to tragedy, or at least to the risk of tragedy, is damnation. The only place outside of heaven, Lewis writes, where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers of love is hell. Hard words. They're true, aren't they? Perhaps you've seen it. Someone who's closed off their heart in bitterness or anger. And that heart doesn't become soft. It becomes hard as a rock. Pretending to be safe, it becomes hard as a rock, impenetrable. It may be a form, inside of this, a form or shape of love, but it is not gospel love. Why? Why? Gospel love puts itself out. Gospel love always involves risk. As Lewis says, it is always vulnerable. This is what Christ did. This is what Christ asks. It always comes with a cost. So my friends, this is true in our relationship individually with Him. Is it not? This is true individually in our relationship with Him. Uh, Check out verse 13 for a moment. The phrase in verse 13 that we haven't really wrestled with yet. But John here says, Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. In context of Cain and Abel, John just throws in this statement that's really important for us to grab. Don't be surprised. Don't be shocked. Don't be shocked when you are hated. Why? Hated in this case because of your attachment to him. Hated in this case because of your righteous life. Your righteous life, John says, will irritate people. You will irritate people. Because they they don't love the light. They don't want the light. They don't want to be confronted with the light. And so your righteous life and your love even of them will be irritating. So to love God comes at a cost, does it not? Comes at a cost. Friend, if you stand for the light, you will likely lose a friendship. If you speak the truth in love, if you speak the truth in love, you will likely lose a friendship. You will be countered. You will be countered with hate. So John says, don't be surprised by it. I think it's important just generally and broadly in our culture for Christians to be aware of this reality. Like We should stop being so shocked and so surprised when legislation comes down that's opposed to Christ. When legislation comes down that's opposed to God and His Word. Right? I'm not saying you should be happy about it. We talk about these things, but at a level we shouldn't be shocked by it. Shouldn't be shocked by it. Why? This is going to happen. As it gets worse, my friends, it's going to happen. Do not be surprised. Don't be shocked or waylaid when people hate you. They hated Christ. They hated Christ. All he did, my friends, was speak the truth in love. Isn't that true? That's all Jesus did. He was the walking demonstration of love, and he was the walking demonstration of truth, articulation of truth. What did they do? They scourged him, and they hung him on a cross. They hated him, starting with the Pharisees, Sadducees. They ground their teeth at him. They could not stand his way of light and his way of love. 
So Jesus told his disciples, Matthew chapter 16, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. What is the cross, my friends? What is the cross? It's an emblem of shame. It's an emblem of death. Okay? So Jesus says, take it up. Don't be surprised when the world hates you. What are we saying? Love for God comes with a cost. It comes at risk. It's not safe. It's vulnerable. But it's also true in our interpersonal relationships. It's true in our relationship with God. It's also true horizontally with one another. God is asking us, verse 16, I would challenge you. See if you can read it another way. God is asking us to lay our lives down for each other. To lay our lives down for the brothers, for the sisters. Don't miss the scandal in this, my friends. Don't miss the scandal in it. Uh, one of, the, one of the, the most compelling memes I've seen was from the Gospel Coalition. And it, it was a, a picture simply of an ultrasound. And it brought about this beautiful contrast between abortion and the gospel. And in this ultrasound, on top of this ultrasound, it said, essentially, abortion says, you die for me. You will pay for me. For a mom and a dad who don't want to be inconvenienced by a life, you will die for me. Whereas the gospel says, Jesus says, I'll die for you. This is 1 John 3.16. He gave his life for us. And this is the kind of sacrifice, my friends, this is the kind of love that he compels us to live out. That he compels us to give to one another. It's scandalous, my friends, because it takes us completely out of the center. And my friends, again, the world doesn't know this. The world can't comprehend this because there's always a way society will bring you into the center. Right? In that argument, well, it's your body, it's your life. Ignore the other one. Ignore the other one. That is not the way of Christ. Amen? It's not the way of the gospel. The way the gospel is compelling us to lay our lives down for others. Lay ourselves down for others. Thus Jesus says, John chapter 15, verses 12 and 13. This is my commandment. That you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this. That someone lay down his life for his friends. This is real love. My friends. This is real love. That someone would lay down his life for his friends. Uh, years ago, I told you this story. I love this story. Um, it's told of a group of POWs in the Vietnam War. And these POWs, there were eight of them together. They were charged one particular day in a concentration camp to come out of the prison and to dig a particular trench. Each of them were issued a, sh a shovel. These guys proceeded to dig this trench. At the end of the day, 
Uh, the guards, the prison guards, collected all eight shovels and lined those guys up to take them back into the prison, to the concentration camp. But at a certain point in time, one of the guards got irate, he got angry, in essence, flying off the handle. He come back, came back to these eight POWs and he said, which one of you hid the shovel? Which one of you is trying to hide this for later use? And none of them moved. None of them raised their hands. None of them stepped forward. And this particular soldier, this guard, got all the more angry. He continued to ask. Finally, he said, if no one admits, if no one confesses, I'm going to kill you all. At that juncture, one of those POWs, trembling, stepped forward and confessed. I hid the shovel. In that moment, the guard shot him dead. He fell in the trench and they buried him. But moments later, as the story goes, they recounted. And all eight shovels were there. All eight shovels were there. No one had hit a shovel. But one stepped forward to take the penalty so that the rest could go free. This is a beautiful picture of the gospel, is it not? Jesus was innocent. In every way, he was innocent. He didn't deserve to die, but he stepped forward. And he took the bullet, as it were, he took the bullet for us so that we could go free. And all throughout the New Testament, what he simply says is this. Brothers and sisters, if you've been transformed by that reality, live it out. In most cases, I'm not going to ask you to take a bullet for your neighbor. I'm not going to ask you to take a bullet for your brother and sister. I'm just asking you to lay, lay down your pride a little bit. Lay down your selfishness. Lay down your self-preservation instincts to prefer your brother, to prefer your sister, because this is the way a believer knows love. This is the way a Christian knows love. So the question is, how can we do this? My friends, how can we do this? Number one, we must be born again. Don't forget how we started. This love that John is talking about is a supernatural love. This is what we're talking about with regard to not just being able to flip a behavioral switch. It's not going to happen. You and I will never keep Matthew 5. You and I will never love this way apart from regeneration. Apart from the presence and power of the Holy Spirit of God in our lives. Could I ask you to evaluate yourself again? in search of hate or love, have you been born again? Has God brought you to a place whereby you understood your sin and you repented to trust? You repented to believe in Him alone. It's only a heart that's been born again that can love like this. Number two, we must be yielded to His Spirit. Yielded to His Spirit. This requires divine empowerment, divine enablement. Just for a moment, I want you to consider Galatians chapter 5. This, this passage beautifully contrasts our selfish mindset, our fleshly mindset with the mindset governed by the Spirit. 
Galatians 5, verse 13. For you, he says, we're called to freedom, brothers, only, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Don't use your freedom as an opportunity to just live for you. But through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love, shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk how? By the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And the fruit of the Spirit, verse 22, is love. Walk by the Spirit. The answer this morning is not first. It's not first. I'm going to just decide today to go out and be a more loving person, a less hateful person and a more loving person. The first move is to know for sure that you are born again. Second move, if you're a believer here this morning, the first move is to yield your heart to the Spirit of God. If you know Christ, you have Him within you. My friends, trust me, if you are daily, if you're starting each day, yielded to the Spirit of God, just saying to God, God, thank you for dying for me. Holy Spirit, help me to live that out. That takes 10 seconds. But if we start every day like that and just to say, Holy Spirit, please fill me and use me today. Give me words today. Give me eyes to see other, other people today. Help me today. This is the answer. I, I dare you. I challenge you, my friends. Live that way and see how God will direct your steps. See how God might change your perspective of that other person. See how life might be with us here. Be wonderful, man, if we are all coming together just looking to love on each other, just looking to, to bless other people, man, that's a, that's a great place to be. It's a happening place. So yield yourself to the Spirit of God. But then thirdly, this is why I asked throughout, for you guys to stay with me, we must act. We must act. I said last week, this is not fundamentally um, getting at volition, the volition of the will. I said that because it's contextually and textually accurate. John is driving at our security. But what John does is exactly what every New Testament writer does. It's exactly what Jesus does. He goes directly from that regeneration, that change to say, now act it out. Brothers and sisters, lead your heart. Okay? As you're led by the Spirit of God, do, work, act. So the question, what do we do? How do we act? That's what we'll talk about next week. Okay? As this text continues, it will be a love that sees and a love that serves. Okay, a love that sees and a love that serves. We'll talk more about that next week. So consider for your hearts this morning, this love, what, what kind of love is it? It's a supernatural love. It's a supernatural love that is selfless.